Good evening and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we're striving to be your public radio resource for the inspiration, information, and motivation to build your own financial independence through real estate investing. And as we have said many, many times, the best way to build financial independence in the in the true sense, in the I have more passive income than I have bills since is to own rental properties. I know you don't want to do it. It's not sexy like fixing up a house and getting a $30,000 check. But on the other hand, if you want another $30,000 check, you got to go do it again where your rental properties if you buy them and manage them right, we'll keep paying you month after month, year after year, and leave you a legacy to pass on to your children and grandchildren. Now, that part about managing it, though, that's, uh, that's a, real, a real key to successful rental properties. And so today, we're doing a show on things we wish landlords knew. My guest today is Jim Shapiro of Waybridge Properties. He is a longtime landlord and property manager for other people's rental properties. He's past president of the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati and currently serving on their board as secretary as well. And Jim, I think people typically come to you for your property management services because they haven't bothered to find out the stuff that we're about to talk about before they ran out and bought a rental property. That's that's often the case. Or they they got into it and realized they just don't have the time or, or interest or motivation, and they don't really know how to deal with all the crazy situations that come up. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing about having a rental property is when it's vacant, you have to be ready to act, and you have to get it filled as quickly as you can with the right tenant, and if you don't have the pieces in place to do that, uh, vacant houses uh, are your enemy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are just some, there are just some, I don't know, real key areas of knowledge that I can't picture why anyone <laughs> would write a check for a rental property or even for a down payment on a rental property before they had bothered to study this because it's like there's no whether or not you have a property manager you you are you are going to deal with this stuff like like maybe maybe your property manager is actually doing the work but you're going to deal with questions like um should i take this tenant versus this tenant or uh you know do we take section 8 or do we not take section 8 um things like that so it's kind of it's kind of uh, amazing to me that um I, I don't know you know people won't people won't buy a roll of toilet paper without researching it online but they'll but they'll by golly buy a rental house without uh, some of these key areas of knowledge and of course we only have you know all told maybe 50 minutes here together uh but we're gonna we're gonna touch on some of the some of the big ones that they really need to go out and do further research on if they're not super confident that they're very you know up to date on these things and i think uh the first one that we we come back to on the show over and over and over again uh, is just knowing who you're putting in your property. Absolutely. The screening process is the most important service we do. We spend a lot of time on it. If if people And people lie to us. Sadly, the, the phrase is, if my tenant slips are moving, I know they're lying. 
and and our job is to catch the lie. We call screening a game of catching the lie. You've got to be. You got to treat it. You have to have a have to bring a little humor to this work because we're dealing with all sorts of crazy things. Uh, I had a case this week. Someone applying for a beautiful home in a nice neighborhood, uh, four bed, two bath, thousand dollar a month home, and the landlord they gave us turns out wasn't really their landlord, and they were still living in the house right around the corner with the prior landlord who the ownership had changed, and they didn't think we could find him. <laughs> and we tracked him down, and he said, what do you mean? They're still in my house. They stood me up last week to meet me and give me $1,000. They have been horrible tenants. They're thousands and thousands behind. He said, I'm embarrassed to tell you how far behind they are. And by the way, this is a man who's a realtor and a property manager and teaches people real estate. He offers a mentoring service. He <laughs> said, these people have just taken me for a ride, and their last... The person they told us was the last landlord. It was funny. Now, this is a family of seven with $1,000 a month in food stamps, and the owner said they renovated the basement for him for free, and now a year later they're moving out. It was like, something's wrong there. You don't renovate your landlord's basement when you can't afford to buy food for your kids mm -hmm. and then move out. Mm -hmm. And it turns out he's not their landlord. Mm -hmm. he's, uh, he's not in the same state. And he's a friend of theirs who gave us a lot of really nice answers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, t I, I, I tend to find that the the really, really glowing tenement recommendations, the one that are, oh, yes, I would absolutely, they are the most wonderful human beings I've ever met, and I would absolutely rent to them a thousand times yes. Uh, it generally turns out to be a relative now. <laughs> relative, their friend. Yeah, the, the the issue the issue with tenant screening is, I mean, there's there's various ways to do it. There's services out there that you can pay, and and they will um, they will make an attempt to screen. In my in my experience, they're not gonna they're not gonna make multiple multiple phone calls to find out who the last landlord is. They're not gonna uh, track down a criminal record if these people came from a tiny county in Idaho or something. But a lot of this stuff is available in the public record wherever it is you happen to live so right. your credit report you got to pay to pull that but things like criminal background check do they really uh have they had evictions is it is an important one? does the person that they're saying is the landlord really own the house mm -hmm. we crisscross reference from the auditor records of property ownership and landlord uh registration to the the public records of uh, court records to really track down the right owners and the right people, we look up addresses under their prior evictions and call those landlords who often aren't listed. Uh, and it's a lot of it's a lot of time, mm -hmm. but, but it's but, the most but, important but thing we do, right? Because right, otherwise, that family would have moved into our. We were they scored twelve on our one to twelve system because the current landlord supposedly <laughs> uh, lied about their rental history and lied about taking care of the house, so they got six out of twelve points from his input only he's not really their landlord we need to take a quick break we're talking today about things that every landlord must know because you know even if you have a property manager you need to be able to question your property manager about how they're screening the tenants before you hire them so this is just i'm sorry you can't be so passive that you're not allowed to know the stuff we're talking about today my guest is jim shapiro we will be back right after this Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and talking today about things that every landlord needs to know. And uh, so let's let's talk about fair housing, Jim, because I know as a, as, a, as a real estate agent, as a property manager, as a REA member, as an OPHP, 
um, designee, you have had endless um, education and warnings about, you know, don't don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And we kind of feel like everybody knows don't discriminate. But I know you've had situations where you've actually had clients tell you to illegally discriminate. Right. I have people say things all the time and I tell them I cannot do that. You know, we don't discriminate. The protected classes are race, gender, family status, which is children, um, which is a big one. People say to me, can you not rent to a family with kids? It's like, you've got a four-bedroom house. <laughs> no, I cannot get a tenant who wants a four-bedroom house who doesn't have yeah, kids. For, first of all, you're severely limiting your market for your right. four-bedroom house by saying no children. We can, we can rent to a fraternity. <laughs> uh, color, religion, and national origin. And then in Ohio, we've got a couple extras, and other states may have our own uh, ancestry, uh, which I, I interpret to be, uh, I can't say no to somebody because I used to rent to their cousin and they were a bad tenant. So I have one family, I won't say a name, I've rented to five or six people in this family and most of them have been bad and I cannot discriminate <laughs> against the next person with that family name, although I have one with that family name who's a great long-term <laughs> tenant and they're all related in Cincinnati. Uh, sexual orientation, some areas include uh, age, uh, Appalachian ancestry and here in uh, Cincinnati. And, and, and Appalachian and Cincinnati. And really, I want to screen for good people that have stable income and a good rental history uh, and, and a clear criminal history. Uh, we used to focus more on credit. After the recession, we almost stopped. We'll pull a credit report on a higher-end, more expensive tenant or a more expensive house or on someone buying but we don't really pull credit reports anymore because so many people's credit got bad, and it's just it doesn't really give us indication if they've got stable income. Um, that's the most important thing we want. Now their public record, if they've got judgments hitting their credit, well, now that's different. The guy yesterday who uh, you know sued by the jewelry store, <laughs> it's like okay, you you didn't pay your rent, but you and you didn't pay for the jewelry you bought your wife. <laughs> now the the the. Fair housing piece of it. I mean, there's, there's, we've got multiple. If people look back in the podcast stream, we've got multiple interviews with Debbie Jetter and Elizabeth Brown and different people about um, some of the just basic non discrimination stuff. But, but again, this is much more complex than people think because you know what we missed was disability. We missed disability. Ah. We were going through what are the what are the seven right. of disability and uh, things as seemingly innocent. As uh, someone calls you and they say, um, oh, by the way, my husband's in a wheelchair. And you say, oh, well, you don't want this unit then because it is a second floor unit. And in your mind, you're doing them the favor of not having them come out and look at a unit that hubby's not going to get into. And you just discriminated. Right. The, the proper way to ask that question is, are you aware this is a second floor unit and will that be a problem? And if they say no, then that's... Then, then move on to a different subject. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Maybe they get him upstairs and he never goes out. Uh, but that's the problem. From, the, from a fair housing perspective, it's none of your business. That's that's the bottom line. Right. And and there's there's similar similar things um, uh, that that I hear a lot that fair fair housing agencies get a lot of complaints from clients about. In other words, this is this is the first step toward you, Mister Landlord, getting sued. Um, two bedroom apartment. 
there's mom and two teenage kids and it's a boy and a girl another same thing the it's not your business if mom thinks it's okay for their children to share a room that's the family decision that's not the landlord's decision if you would take three people you have to take three people in any familial combination correct uh, like that um, big issue right now uh, service animals if it's a legitimate service animal a seeing eye dog then that is a protected uh, that is not a pet that is a service animal it's now where it gets fuzzier is when you start hearing about companion animals I'm a nervous person and my doctor says if I have a dog it'll help calm me down now, that is not a service animal, and it's a fuzzier area, and people have been sued for that. Uh, it's it's not necessarily covered by Americans with Disabilities Act, and it is covered by fair housing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so in other words, if you have any question about anything like that, because there, that, that has been a huge area of... Uh, of fair housing law lately is, but my pit bull, I have a doc, I have a note from my doctor saying I, I have anxiety, which is a disability, and I need this dog that your insurance won't cover, and that's a whole nother thing, right? Because if, right. if it's pit bull, literally, your insurance policy says if that dog bites somebody, you're on your own. Right. Um, that, that sort of, uh, you know, weird tension where y- you want to say, uh, okay, if you need an anxiety dog, go live someplace else because my insurance won't cover that dog. And yet, I tell you, if the fair housing people got a complaint about that, they would pursue it. Right. It's now. I believe you could say you'll need to get insurance. And, and I would. What I do in those cases is I just call up the fair housing organization locally. It's the Housing Opportunities Made Equal, and I ask them because if they give me the answer, I know I'm not going to get in trouble. And it's just not worth risking my license and my business to get sued. And the average fair housing suit can cost the, even if you win, it can cost you $20,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In Ohio, if you win, it's going to cost you $20,000, which is why most people settle for the three or five or $7,000 that they are asked for in the first place. And uh, incidentally, I called, I called the local fair housing folks last year with that exact question, how am I supposed to, I didn't have the situation, but I said, how am I supposed to resolve this tension where my insurance guy is saying no pit bulls, no chows, no, you know, they have this whole list of dogs that, that they will not cover. Uh, and yet someone shows up and says, I am disabled and this, this pit bull, although not trained to actually do anything, is my anxiety animal. And what they said was, let us talk to your insurance agent. Oh, really? Yes, because they have also shoot, sued insurers over the years for things that they believed caused disparate impact, which is, and that that is that is right there one of the scariest areas of um, fair housing law is this new it's about a, the year old Supreme Court case about disparate impact that basically says you don't you don't have to consciously or subconsciously intend to discriminate against any of these classes. If your behavior would tend to impact one of them differently than others, you could be guilty of a fair housing violation. One of our practices and what I train my staff is ask everybody the same questions, the same way, with the same tone of voice, be be totally consistent. You should have a standard set of questions you ask and ask it the same. Anything different than that, you open yourself up to 
you know, and just how you sounded. Because if you're being tested by the Fair Housing Agency, you can give the same answer, but the way you say it sounds kind of different, and you're caught. Mm-hmm. So you just need to treat everybody the same, ask the same things, be very, very consistent, be mechanical about it. And that way, if you get tested, you're going to have uh, the same result over and over and over. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to property manager Jim Shapiro about things that every landlord must, 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 must get themselves educated about. So we're going to come back right after this break. Uh, Again, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. If you're wondering why I'm not giving out the phone number every two seconds, it's because this is actually a pre-recorded program. Um, I'm I'm out of town as you are listening to this, and, and Jim is heading out of town, but we thought this was an important program to do. And uh, let's tackle a couple of more kind of uh, pieces of the of the legal and regulatory process, and then and then we'll wrap up with your favorite pet peeve about how people take care of their rentals. Right. <laughs> um, but before before we get to those, I think two of the two of the biggest questions about uh, rentals are: Should I take Section Eight? Uh, and actually, that's not usually how it's posed. It's usually posed as, I'm taking Section 8 because it's guaranteed rent. How can you lose? And then the other one is, everybody goes into these relationships with tenants thinking everything's going to be fine. And eventually, it's maybe not going to be fine and understanding the process for exiting that relationship legally. All right. Well, let's talk first about Section 8. Section Now, we're in Cincinnati, and we've got a Section 8 agency in our town who's, that's changed a lot over the years. And unfortunately, it's become very difficult to work with. I talk to owners in other cities, and they say, Section 8's great here. And they want to, you know, one woman called me recently. She wants to fill 15 houses with Section 8 tenants. And she didn't know what it was like here. So, yes, Section 8 is uh, it's guaranteed rent. You've got some hoops to jump through. There's some paperwork. Uh, do your Do your research. Talk to local landlords. Talk to a property manager. Find out what goes on. Uh, and our our city, they they expect us to inspect our homes and bring them up to A quality standards for what are often B and C quality neighborhoods and B and C and D quality tenants. And I have some. I want to say I have some wonderful Section Eight tenants, and I have some long term, clean, delightful. They're they're among my best tenants, and I have some market rate tenants that are terrible. Mm-hmm. And sadly, more of my Section Eight tenants are are at the lower end of my spectrum because they're people struggling in poverty. And what we're dealing with is the challenges of poverty and generational poverty. And so we've got that screening process is very important. We want to screen our Section 8 tenants just as carefully as every other tenant. And it should be the same because now you're consistent with fair housing. Uh, We treat the Section 8 income as income, just like if they had a job. So if Section 8 is going to pay $800 rent, then that's $800 of their income. If we're looking for a $2,400 household income, three times the rent, and Section 8's going to pay 800 and they have $600 in other income, well, $1,400 doesn't qualify. That tenant is going to have, you know, I wouldn't approve any other tenant with a $1,400 income for an $800 house. 
I won't approve a Section 8 tenant. Interesting. Because so, I don't think most people look at it that way. I think I think most people are like, oh, if they're paying the $800 rent, boom, it's good. Well, it means they're not going to pay, they're going to struggle to pay the water, they're going to struggle to pay the utilities, they're going to struggle to take care of the yard. Uh, Generally, Section 8 tenants have a part of the rent that is theirs. They're going to struggle to make their share of the payment if they have a share. And so, yes, the rent might be paid, and a and a poor tenant who can't, take care of their home, can't take care of their family, is not a good tenant, even if the rent's being paid. Things just, too many things go wrong. And families in those situations are often, they're hard in our homes. They're they're challenging. We come in and the doors are broken, the closets are broken, because no one taught them to take care of things. And uh, we're giving them a forty to eighty to $180,000 asset. And to them, it's it's just this free thing that they're allowed to live in, and so the uh, the challenges there are vast. Uh, a big part of it is training your tenants, letting them know your expectations up front. When you're signing that lease with them, there shouldn't be a twenty second here sign here sign here sign here. Great, here's the keys. We spend an hour. We read the lease to them. We t- and they still deny that they know when it said these things, and we know. We went through with everybody, not just our Section 8 tenants. Here's your responsibilities. You're responsible for the yard. You're responsible to call us when there's a problem. We will fix things, but you need to tell us. And when they don't tell us, and then we fail inspections over problems that we would have rather fixed anyway, especially water. People won't call and tell you there's a leak, uh, especially if they're not paying the water bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the water costs in our county have become astronomically high. They've gone up over three hundred percent since two thousand. And so, if you got a two family and the tenant doesn't tell you that the toilet's running, and you get an eight hundred dollar water bill for three months, wow, that's 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 three or four months of profit down the drain, literally. But this is a, I mean, this isn't a challenge of Section Eight tenants. It is a challenge of renting properties. Period. It's just that so many people think they don't have to screen. They don't. They don't have to look at the Section Eight tenants. And you know, the best way to find out if they're going to break the doors is go see if they broke the doors in the house that they're in now. But that's that's equally true for Section Eight, non-Section Eight, right. higher and lower. People end. are people, right. uh, And you need to treat them all. And what you just suggested, I have twenty to thirty vacancies at a time, and I don't go inspect all my homes, tenants, applicants' homes. Uh, if I had one or two rental properties, I would say part of your inspection, your rental approval process is go see the current home. And if they don't want to show you their home, then you probably don't want to rent to them because you can be pretty confident whatever their house that they've been living in for one or two or three years looks like is what your house is going to look like one or two or three years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you can even just take a drive by and see what the yard looks like. Find the pit bull that's barking in the front yard that they didn't tell you about. <laughs> It doesn't belong to them. It's their sisters. All right. The um, the uh, the the moral with Section Eight though is is something you said early on, which is talk to local landlords. Don't talk to the local Section Eight department because they will generally try and sell you on you know this, this on their program. This is great. Uh, talk to the local landlords about what's what's going on because, as you said, Section Eight here in Hamilton County is extraordinarily challenging right now. Um, I know hundreds, literally, of landlords have just fled the program. Like, like don't, e- don't even come to me and tell me you're a Section 8 tenant because it doesn't matter how good you are. I'm not dealing with the program. But wherever you are, you do give up 
a certain amount of control of your property by renting it Section 8. You have a, a government inspector coming in your home every year, which when they used to be fair, it wasn't the end of the world because you want to keep up with your homes anyway. Uh, now it's become excessive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, and then uh, finally in the last couple of minutes of this segment, um, the eviction process. <laughs> well, the eviction process, It's first it's, it may be different in your state or your area, so you need to confirm it. Uh, in Cincinnati, in, Hamilton, in Ohio, uh, non-payment of rent, you can give a three-day notice because the courts rule that people don't pay their rent. The landlord shouldn't have to wait 30 days to, to take action. Uh, if it's a Section 8 tenant, you need to give a 10-day notice. That's a HUD requirement. Anything else is a 30-day notice. Uh, unauthorized pets, uh, damages, disturbing other people, not taking care of the home, or just you want to terminate someone for a month-to-month who's gone past their year and you want them out, you can give a 30-day notice. Now, I have to qualify that. It's a one-month notice because they're in a month-to-month status, so it's the first of the upcoming month to the end of the upcoming month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on sometimes the the first of the month, if you get it, you rush it there good. On the second of the month, you've really turned it into almost a sixty day. Yeah, and this is this is a place where I'm sure your lengthy experience will tell you it is not good to be overly permissive when when oh, when gosh, people no. when people say I'm going to get you the rent or I will be gone by the end of I haven't paid you my rent, but I will be gone by the end of the month anyway, so don't bother to evict me. Yeah. We give them a notice now because when they didn't move out, we're, we just lost all that time. They said, I'll be out in two weeks. Well, we give them the, the notice, and and we may file depending upon the situation. Once you file, first, if your property is owned in an LLC or an entity, you need an attorney. If it's owned in your own name, you can file under your own name. It's about $140 of legal cost to file. Yeah, that's here for people in New York City. It's like five times that. (laughs) And then your attorney cost, if you're paying an attorney, it can range from $40, excuse me, $60 to an attorney who does a lot of evictions and is down there all the time to whatever their hourly rate. So if you go to your business attorney who bills $250 an hour to do an eviction, he'll probably charge you or she'll charge you $250 an hour. Mm -hmm. And... That may mean going uh, multiple times, and it could be very expensive. So make sure you know who your what your situation is as far as that attorney. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once you once you give the notice, you wait that certain number of days. And in Ohio, the three day notice doesn't count weekends or holidays. The thirty day notice does. Then you uh, file at the end of that period. You get a court date, which might be two to four weeks down the road, depending on how busy the county is. You go to court. Uh, I Typically, we've been successful. Uh, then the tenant's given uh, eight days, typically, to move. At the ninth day, you call the bailiff and can schedule to do a set-out, which in Hamilton County, then I'll charge $50. And even if you cancel, you've paid your $50. Uh, and then you need to show up and be ready to empty that unit in an hour. And if you're in a three-bedroom or four-bedroom house, that might mean you need to bring eight or ten people because the bailiff expects you to be in and out. Hour, they may give you a little extra time, but they're not going to give you four hours for two people to empty that house. dump da dump da dump You bring a big box of contractor bags and everything goes in the bag and out to the street. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a... It sounds like a you know, cruel process and whatnot. But it, during all this time, of course, you still have a house payment. 
but didn't right. get paid because you didn't get the rent. You just spent toting it up probably 500 bucks between the eviction, the lawyer, the 10 people hired to go set people out, the $50. And it's very expensive. It's not, you're not doing your tenants any favor by letting them sit, sit there in a unit that they clearly cannot afford without moving them along. Because most people do move out. When they, when they realize they're going to court, they find another place and they move out, which is a positive for them and for you. Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. When we come back, we're going to uh, tackle what in Jim's mind is one of the biggest things that real estate investors and landlords need to know, which is how to appropriately manage and maintain your units. We will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Mina Jones-Cox, talking today about, uh, talking very quickly, really, about some of the key things that you need to go out and learn. And if, you're, if your local real estate association is not bringing in people to talk about these things, then you're going to have to go out and find them. Because again, the, you know, the whole learning to manage your rental thing is not the sexiest thing in the world, but good Lord, do it wrong. And it's the most expensive thing in the world. I can sure tell, tell you that from experience. Now, Jim, one of one of the things that when, when we were talking about, like, so so what are the big five we should hit on here? Um, that you immediate your immediate reaction was, oh my gosh, people have got to have rentals that people want to live in. I think sometimes people they don't get it, and they figure how cheap you know they look at how they can cut corners. Now, you go into a kitchen of a four-bedroom house, and it's got a four-foot sink base and two cabinets overhead. Now, no one can serve, can cook a meal for a family of four to six to eight in that kitchen. And yet, you know, or people buy, you know, tiny little refrigerators to put in houses in four or five-bedroom houses. Uh, people give, they don't give them, you know, you go into a bathroom there's no cabinets, there's two, there's a toilet paper holder, there's no towel rods, there's no... Just a mirror on the wall yeah, and a light a mirror over the, on the mirror. Wall, and you say, okay, you know, and a 19-inch vanity, because <laughs> it's only $89 at, you know, the big box. And, and if there's room, you know, the kitchen and the bathroom are workshops. One's for cooking meals and one's for making... Women's face is beautiful <laughs> and doing their hair, right? I mean, that's really what it goes okay, on. Because, yeah, men never shave in the well, sink. Well, men shave, and... but women need more counter space. <laughs> and and we all My say- My boyfriend in... has more hair products than I well, do, so okay. you can't you just, uh, you just leave that alone right, right there. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> so, you know, a 19-inch vanity in a family of four, there's not even room to put a glass with with toothbrushes on it. No less, you know, so put up some shelves in the bathroom- Put up a medicine cabinet. Sometimes I'll put in two medicine cabinets. If I've got a big house, medicine cabinets are $19. So put them side by side and, and give people a place to store their stuff. You know, hair product, cleaning supplies. Now, I hate pedestal sinks in a main bathroom. Where are they going to keep the cleaning supplies? Where are they going to keep toilet paper? Especially when there's no, if there's no uh, closet, no linen closet, no vanity, and they got a $99 pedestal sink. It, the, the house doesn't work for people. You know, I like putting, you know, for $150, you put a microwave over the oven. A vent is still 50 to 60. Put the microwave up there. And now they've just freed up all this counter space. Uh, make sure people have a house that will work for them because they may not even realize why the house doesn't work. But when everything's frustrating for them, 
and they just move after a year or two. And if you give them extras that make the house really work, they got a great kitchen they can cook in, they've got a bathroom that fits their family needs. Uh, if there's any way to give a half bath, people love to have an extra place. Uh, those differences, they result in tenant retention. And tenant retention is where you make your money in this business. If your tenant doesn't last three years, you're going to lose money. By the time you deal with turnover, painting, cleaning, carpet, uh, and the vacancy, the lost income from vacancy, uh, if you don't have a three-year run with a tenant, you're not going to break even. In most cases, yeah, and I, I don't know if I don't know if the folks out there in listenerville can hear the stress in your voice as you're talking <laughs> about this, but um, when, when somebody only owns one or two houses, like everything is just anecdotal, right? This tenant moved out after six months. That's just anecdotal. It's just I only have two. I only have a, a small sample size. You have a big sample size. We have over three hundred units under <laughs> management now. So, so, so you're seeing this stuff over and over and over again, and I think the frustration for you is probably trying to explain to the you, you got you got two owners with identical three bedroom slab ranches in the same neighborhood and the one who's got the pedestal sink in the and the you know four cabinets in the kitchen is wondering why he can't what wonder wonder why you can't get him the eight hundred dollars a month that the guy over here who did all that stuff is getting uh screens there's another one people i had a client wanted to buy a house uh, an 11 unit building and none of the windows had screens. And he was thinking he can raise the rent a whole lot. You know, this Zika virus thing, when people are all worried about the mosquitoes are going to make them sick, they're going to be really caring about whether they have screens. Maybe they'll even take care of them because <laughs> tenants that do have screens often abuse them. The uh, screens, uh, outlets that, you know, work. Uh, if you don't have air conditioning, put up a couple of $39 ceiling fans because it's going to make the tenant comfortable sitting in their hot bedroom or their hot living room on a 90-degree summer day, and it it doesn't cost that much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, give, give people the things that will make the house comfortable and work for them, and it, it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And and it, and it makes a direct difference in... How much rent you can get and how quickly it rents. It is just Absolutely. not. It is just not the case that a three bedroom in neighborhood X always rents for seven fifty. It rents for seven fifty if it has yep. the stuff that makes people comfortable, and if not, it sits there vacant for six months at seven fifty, and then everybody's mad at the property manager because he wasn't able to fill it. <laughs> I manage around ten properties in a neighborhood called Seven Hills, mostly three bedroom slab ranches, and the ones that are nice, nice kitchens, decent bathrooms, new windows. Uh, we can fill them in a month or two. The ones that are crummy with the old aluminum windows, no screens, ugly kitchens, old counters, uh, pink toilets and, and bathtubs, you know, they we, we attract the worst quality tenants to them because a good family won't move into that house. And they turn over, over and over and over. And as I've I've got one client who's got a bunch over there, and as we've improved them, the nicer ones get rented and stay rented, and the ones that we haven't done any upgrades to in 30 years, you know, we, we still have trouble over and over and over. And we attract then the quality of tenant that will take that, and they never are successful. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Again, um, 
trying to really touch on the high spots today of things that landlords need to know. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.